The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Second Peter 1.16 through the end of the chapter, but let me back up and read beginning at 12, and you'll hear Peter telling you that this is his last word, more or less. Listen to God's word. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is God's own holy word. And you heard in this passage that Second Peter may rightly be called the last will and testament of this particular apostle. He told you he thought the putting off of his own body and a departure was coming for him very soon. We can verify that. We believe this letter was within a year of Peter's execution or his martyrdom in Rome when he was crucified there as a known Christian leader around 67 or possibly 68 A.D. Not much has changed, you know, about the world and how it receives Christianity from that day when I reflect the fact that in charge of the whole Mediterranean world and beyond was a man named Nero, Caesar, just about the worst of the Caesars that ruled in those days. Nero was a madman, basically. He did whatever he felt like doing any old time and was happy to blame anything that went wrong on Christians. He would fit really well in the role of Kim Jong-un of North Korea. Two men 
egomaniacally crazed with their own power and paranoid about how to use it. They would have been good friends. Good thing Nero didn't have nuclear missiles. He would have used them, I'm pretty sure. Well, the social and religious intolerance that was aimed at Christians in that first century is aimed at Christians today in varying ways around the world. I've been reading literature from The Voice of the Martyrs. If you're not familiar with how to know about the suffering Christian world, look up The Voice of the Martyrs on your computer and get yourself on their, you can get on their mailing list for free. Learn about what is going on. Your eyes will be opened. Christians are facing things that are every bit as bad as what they faced in the Colosseum of Rome and other places in the first century. I think many of us just don't believe it when they tell us that the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st have been the most deadly time in human history to be a Christian. We don't believe that because nobody's standing at the door of our churches with machine guns and manacles waiting to take us off or to kill us on the spot. But people are dying for Christ all around the world. And there are times very much like the times of this century into which Peter wrote to people who were scattered all around the Roman Empire, many of them with Jewish backgrounds, but others not, others Gentile, and what they had in common was Christ. And what they had in common was they were suffering. And they were saying, why is this happening? Why this strong outbreak against us? Peter was trying to address it. I want to take some longer time than usual for just to fill in the background a little bit of this, what I would call a cosmic conflict, because it wasn't just a social or political conflict. It was a cosmic conflict of evil versus the kingdom of God that was going on, clashing in Peter's day just as it does today. We tend to crawl in our little holes, our little dens, and we whine in self-pity about the fact that our views are no longer accepted views in America, and everybody's ganging up on us and calling us intolerant because we insist that a man is a man and a woman is a woman and the two are not mixed, and we're being openly mocked in the public square, and we say, poor us. Well, folks, that's the way it's been for Christians for a lot of centuries. And the times actually when that kind of open hostility has not been experienced by Christians are fewer than when it has been. These people who were being written to by Peter were faced an open hailstorm more than we. They were singled out, they were jailed, they suffered, they were killed, they were chased out of their societies and their homes. And amid gathering gloom of all kinds, first century Christians were thinking, where is that promise of the second coming of Christ, our Lord? He told us he would come again. When he was ascended into heaven in a glorious way, a messenger told these same apostles, this Jesus will come again in the same way as you have seen him taken into heaven, Acts chapter 1 reports that. Where is that coming? Because surely that will undo all of this suffering, all of this chaos in which we're living. 
And how is it that the gospel of Jesus promises ultimate triumph for us, but we're not seeing triumph, we're seeing nothing but defeat, evil men in control? How is this and why is this, people were asking. Well, Peter launches right in to talk about the fact that these people have not been given cleverly devised myths or fables when it was made known to them about the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to look at that text if you have it open in front of you because it's a little deceptive what this passage in the second half of chapter 1 is about. We know this passage mostly by verses 20 and 21 of what it says about Scripture and its interpretation and authority, but actually that isn't the main subject. The main subject is given to you by verse 16, the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes into talking about Scripture, and I'll fill that in why in a minute. This is not the first coming of Christ that Peter's talking about. He's not talking about the miraculous birth in Bethlehem. He's not even talking about the earthly life of Jesus and his teaching and his miracles, and, or even right here at least, his death on the cross or his resurrection. We believe, and I don't know of a commentator who doesn't agree, that he's talking about his second coming, his powerful coming to end history, to culminate history as the great appointed judge who will separate between the saved and the lost, between heaven and hell, and bring history as we know it to an end. We know that this, this subject is on Peter's mind because it comes up very definitely in the third chapter, if you want to glance ahead for a minute, chapter 3, verse 4, he speaks of critics who are saying, where is that promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation, and he refutes that as well. It is the second coming that is in Peter's thinking very directly because he's hearing people say, oh, God hasn't fulfilled that promise, and it doesn't look like he's going to. This is actually the main subject of our passage here in the second part of chapter 1 of Second Peter. Where is Christ? When is he coming to straighten out all this mess? We don't just need a better politician to lead us. We need a Savior. We need a conqueror who can face up to our enemy, the devil, and trounce him. When will he come? And, of course, they're not seeing this consummating event happen. It's predicted. They know it was predicted, but they're not seeing it. What if at some point before the birth of Jesus, the first time, his first coming, some prophet had come forth in Israel at a particular time, and he predicted all the things that would take place that we know took place in the first coming of Christ? What if this man appeared, or say, around the time earlier than John the Baptist, and he stepped forth and said, now you Israelites who are waiting for your Messiah... Let me tell you about all all that I can tell you down-to-earth details about your Messiah. Here's what's going to happen, and here's what he's going to be like. He's going to be born in a peasant home in a barn to a teenage mother who doesn't have a husband. He's going to grow up in obscurity 
He'll be chased all over the earth, but nobody will catch him to be able to kill him when he's a child. He'll grow up in Nazareth in an obscure place, and he'll work 30 years without anybody recognizing who he is. And then he'll have three brilliant years of ministry in which he'll teach like no other man, do miracles. But at the end of that, just when everybody's starting to say, this is the Messiah, he will volunteer to go to a Roman cross and die a bloody death and then he will rise again. What if somebody came and put that whole package out before people? Do you think that prophet would have been applauded? And, oh, now we finally know. We finally know which they would have thrown him out. Our Messiah will not be like that. And now, likewise, they have a prediction that he will come again on the clouds with power and great glory. And they're saying, doesn't seem to be happening. I wonder if it's ever going to happen. You see, people, until they see it, think most of the prophecies about Christ are somehow or other not right until they can look at them and say, oh, look there, it did happen after all. And what we're seeing in our age, just as in this first century, is a battle between the forces of evil that has a face Satan is a personification of evil, and that is fighting against the truth of God. And we have no doubt about who will win, but at any given point in the struggle, in the chaotic warfare, it doesn't look like God is winning. It doesn't look like Christ is winning. It looks like Satan is is fighting with a battalion of tanks, and we're like little boys with slingshots trying to stand up against it. Well, Peter wants to object to these people that there are two very clear, distinct reasons why they should not disregard or give up their hope in, quote, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The rest of our time is going to look at these two things that he says uh, we need to hold on to and be aware of in favor of that event that is still coming. The first is in verses 16 through 18, where he says, eyewitness apostles saw Christ's supernatural glory once before. And therefore, his logic is, we will see it again. You see, he starts talking here with with no real introduction about the event that we know in the Gospels as the transfiguration of Jesus, reported in Three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9. John doesn't have a distinct account of the transfiguration, but I'll tell you in a few minutes why we know he was aware of it. The transfiguration was this amazing moment when Jesus called Peter, this Peter, James, and John aside and wanted to consult with them. And when they were with him in a mountainous area, the other disciples not there, there was this glorious thing in which Jesus was changed by the dazzling white of his clothing, even the shining of his face, which it is said shone like the sun, and the glory of God was on him in such an amazing way, and wonder of wonders, they heard a voice. Now in the Bible, you know, if you want to know that something's true, you want several witnesses, and that's certainly why there were three of them there. So Peter couldn't just come back and say, hey, guys, I saw this really amazing thing. And they go, oh, yeah. They all saw it. 
They saw this, and they say here, Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty and of even a voice that came from we know not where and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The same thing the Lord had said audibly at the baptism of Jesus. Now, Peter, what Peter's saying is, I want you to think in terms of his second coming and think of that in terms of what he has already shown us about his tremendous divine glory. The hymn we sang, we opened with today, talked about something being godlike and divine. Well, if ever there was a moment when Jesus was godlike, it was the transfiguration. And Peter says, we saw it. Now, he's throwing down a gauntlet here and challenging people from that day to this and saying, look, you've got a couple of alternatives, whether you believe this or not. Maybe alternative one is this. Possibly this was some kind of a magician's trick. Jesus might have been somehow the heir of a a league of magicians in his day, and with smoke and mirrors and so on, he, he does what some of these you know, Hollywood magicians do make an elephant disappear from the stage or something. I don't know how they do that. The elephant doesn't disappear. You know that. You know it's a trick, but you can't figure out how did they do the trick. Well, alternative A is Jesus was a conjurer. He was fooling people. He was bringing off a light and smoke and mirrors show. Maybe that's what you believe. Alternative B could be, well, these men were tired, they lacked sleep, they were like men wandering in the heat of the desert uh, and saw a mirage. They saw something that wasn't really there. They imagined. Jesus didn't do it to fool them, but they imagined this glorification of him. It didn't really happen. Or we certainly must admit the alternative of alternate uh, C, that Peter, James, and John really did see exactly what the gospel reports. They saw the unveiled, hidden glory of Christ as Son of God, Son of the Highest, the person that he was in preexistence before Bethlehem, before he came to this world. We certainly have to weigh that alternative. Now, some people would say, well, Okay, maybe, maybe, I don't know. But why should I believe you? And Peter, you see what Peter's saying? You see his logic? He's saying, I'm asking you to believe your next sight of Christ is going to be every eye of humanity, believer and unbeliever, seeing him on the clouds. Scientifically, we can't explain how this would happen. How would people in Lancaster, Pennsylvania see the same thing people in Beijing would see? Just to say it's not possible. Well, all things are possible with God and His God's amazing power. And that's what we're told is going to happen in Thessalonians and other places. Every eye will see Him. Every ear will hear a great sound, a great call from God. And Peter's saying, look, I saw it once. God did it once. He brought the supernatural galloping into the midst of our humdrum lives and showed us Christ this way, so I can easily believe that he would do it again. And John, I mentioned John's gospel doesn't have a transfiguration scene. However, in the beginning of John, chapter 1, verse 14, he writes, we have seen 
His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So John was talking about the same thing. I saw it too. To the mind of Christ-centered faith, God having done something once in history is a tremendous evidence that he can and will do that again if he chooses to. The ultimate question for us to answer, according to Peter's challenge here, is are the witnesses like the apostles and Peter and, and the others, are they reliable witnesses or not? Are they fabricators? Are they frauds? Are they trying to sell us a bill of goods? You have to come back to consider there that other than John, John was the only one of the original apostles who did not die a violent death for the faith. So Peter and James and many others of these apostles who maintained that Christ would come again in power and glory died for a lie, right? They made up this myth. They tried to sell the public this fable, and they, were, they carried it all the way through a violent death. Wait a minute. That doesn't make much sense to me. I'm not going to die for a lie, I can tell you that. Would you? Is that really credible? Peter's saying, Christ is coming. No matter how bad, how gloomy, how difficult our situation is now, nothing will hinder his coming in power and glory. And I know because I've seen him in that power and glory already in my lifetime in history. But then for his second point, his second argument to buttress this, look at the text, verses 19 through 21. And now he, he's just argued, I had a fantastic experience where I saw this. And that's, you, you say, well, how can you argue with a man who's had an experience like this unless he's a blatant liar? But he says, you know what? Look at the beginning of verse 19. We have something more sure more sure than my experience. If you doubt what I'm saying as a proof that Christ is coming, let me tell you what else we have. We have God's prophetic word, which in many different ways predicts that this will happen. And God's bright word gleams in our darkness as the ultimate guarantee that Christ will come again. Something more sure the Word of God. He says, if you don't believe me, believe the Scriptures for the way in which they all come together, and time after time we've seen things predicted, and what's the fulfillment of it? Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. The Bible says all the prophecies of God have their yes, their amen in Jesus Christ. We've seen this in so many things. You need to believe God's Word. Why? Because a huge portion of the Old Testament Scripture has already been fulfilled. Scripture needs to be viewed not as some patchwork quilt of, you know, a little book of philosophy over here and a book of poetry over here and a historical story that's inspiring over here. It needs to be viewed as God speaking prophetically through all these different voices in 66 books about 40 authors bringing things to a head that culminate in Christ as the main character that unites them all. The Scripture itself is a great wonder. That's what Peter's trying to say here. 
It isn't something that man devised because of his cleverness. C.S. Lewis often gets quoted. He was an expert in the English department of the great universities of Britain where he taught. He was an expert on myths and fables, the mythology, especially things like Norse mythology and so on that that, uh, people study. And Lewis, I'm paraphrasing him, but I know I'm pretty close to what he said. He said one time, I am an expert in the field of the study of mythology. And he said, I know what myth is like. I know what it is made up of. And let me tell you, the text of the Bible does not resemble the mythology of mankind. It is, Lewis said, the myth that so happens to be true. The true myth. It has all the characteristics of God's own truth. That's what Peter is saying here. God, speaking about the future... Through dozens of different voices, we can see things that have been verified, that have been fulfilled, and they sort of build up in a pyramid way, and they come to the capstone. And the great capstone of the pyramid is going to be Jesus Christ coming again. I love what's, what's said in the first part of uh, this, these two letters. First Peter, I might not have stressed this a lot when we looked at First Peter. Look at, back a couple pages at First Peter 1. It's kind of interesting the way Peter depicts the writers of the Bible here, 1 Peter 1.10. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that is to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. What I'm hearing there is... The prophets themselves were acting as conduits of God's message as they expressed it, and they were struggling themselves to say, Lord, I don't necessarily see the whole outcome of of all this that I'm writing about. How will this happen? When will it happen? I'm, I'm getting a piece of it or a fragment of it, but I don't completely understand it. That's interesting, isn't it? Because it certainly is not like there was a a guild of prophets who all got together and said, hey, let's put together a a bit. You write this part, you write this part, you write this part, and we'll we'll make our story meld together into one big thing that predicts Jesus someday. No, they, they wrote what it seemed was clear to them, but they didn't understand what it led to. If you could picture artists, think, think of what happens with some of these, uh, big graphic arts things you see in the city. We have some in, in Lancaster where an old brick building, you know, has this cityscape scene and artists have come in and painted folks on bicycles and folks on a park bench and all kinds of things happening. What, what if we took 12 artists in a, a long brick warehouse and we divided that warehouse up into 12 segments and we, we put a side curtain so that each person was working to paint their scene maybe 8 or 10 feet worth but the, the curtain kept them from seeing what the guy next to them was painting or the third one down or the fourth one down. Everybody was painting their own scene. You'd say, well, that would be a collage of nonsense. I mean, they would each do what they wanted to, but it wouldn't, wouldn't be a whole. It wouldn't, you know, unless they were working from an assigned picture, it would be just a, a mess of all different things. Well, in one sense, that's what the Scripture was. Malachi painting his scene over there. Isaiah painting his scene here. Job, David the psalmist. 
And you pull back all those side screens and get all the artists to stand back a block away and you look at what is painted. And it's a beautiful, coherent whole leading to Jesus Christ. That's what the Scripture is. It's a, it's a miracle book. God spoke through it. God is the author behind all those parts, bringing it to a culmination ahead. And the very utmost head of it all was the power and coming of Jesus Christ, who would end history as its judge. Luther once said this about the Bible. I quote him, We must mark a great difference between God's word and the mere words of men. He said, A man's word is a little sound that flies out into the air, and soon enough its sound vanishes. But the word of God is greater than heaven or earth, greater than death or hell, for it is power coming forth from God himself, and it endures everlastingly. No wonder that man started a little thing called the Reformation 500 years ago because he believed God spoke light in the darkness of men and that Jesus Christ was the flame of the light that the Bible lit. Several years ago, my wife and I went to the Denominations General Assembly in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, I, I had a boyhood fascination with caves and caverns. Actually, I find as I've gotten older, I've become a little bit claustrophobic. And I don't like them quite as much as I did when I was a boy. But we wanted to visit Mammoth Cave. We'd never been there. Biggest, most extensive cave, I understand, in the United States. There are miles of it that they say have never even been charted or explored. So we went in Mammoth Cave with our group of 20 or 25 or so and a guide. And we started going down. And we went down and down and down steps and paths and hills. And I was getting worried because if you go down and down and down, sooner or later, you know you got, if you're coming back, you've got to go up and up and up. I was hoping, I hope there's an elevator involved here somewhere. <laughs> but we kept going down, and, and we got to a place where we were told we were half a mile below the entrance that we had come in. I started to get a little claustrophobic at that point. Half a mile between me and the surface of the earth. And, of course, we could see where we were going because there were electrical lines strung and, you know, lights along the way at convenient enough places. But in most of these cave things, you get to some point where they want to make their little demonstration. So they, they have a section with a switch that the guide can switch off, right? Because they want you to experience total 100% cave darkness. And that means you can't see your hand four inches from your face. So we experienced that. And I had a little stab of fear because now I'm half, an, half a mile below where I came in with all that earth and rock between me. And I thought, uh-oh, what if the power fails? Now, any electrical system I know, you know, sooner or later, could be subject to failure. Bad wiring, a short, what if the power fails? Well, thank goodness it didn't. And, of course, I'm here, so... I got out, but uh, I felt a tremor or two. Well, folks, it seems to me that Peter's saying, we walk in deep darkness. On every side of us in this world, there are dangers, there are pools, there are blind tunnels, there are rocks and cliffs where we could be lost. But God is, has his control on the light. God has given us the light 
of his word. And Jesus is the candle of that light that will not go out. Psalm 119 tells us the word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Peter here tells us that word of God is the most sure light. Look at what it says. Until the day, the great day of Christ's coming is what he means. The day dawns and the morning star arises in our hearts. Christ is the morning star. That's one of his great names in the Bible. So, folks, let me join you, I hope, in looking to all the word promises about Christ, especially the ones that aren't fulfilled yet, that say he is coming on the clouds. He's coming in power and great glory. And I know that's hard to hold on to as a a real-life 21st century belief that it could happen in your lifetime. It takes faith, and our faith isn't so strong. But let Christ be our beacon in the gloomy landscape of today, and let us not hope in some political leader or party or policy or whatever else. Let us hope in the morning star who is coming to claim us as his own people and hold us to himself forever and ever after. Amen. Father, the return of Jesus is a hard thing for us. We haven't seen it. Peter saw something like it, and he says believe in it because I saw it, but I haven't seen it. And every one of us, as good American Christians, sit here and say, I don't know if I really believe that's ever going to happen. But you said it will. So we want to take you at your word. We ask you to stir up hope in all the gloom and the difficulty and the chaos and the opposition and the evil. Stir up our hope that this promise will win in the end. And Jesus will get all the glory. Amen.